Well, good morning, beloved. Uh, it's good to be with you and to be celebrating the, the grace and the goodness of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, our Savior. Uh, we are now going to give our attention to God's Word and give our attention to God Himself as He speaks to us uh, through His Word. And as we prepare to do that, let me lead us in prayer real quick. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we cannot understand your word unless you send the Holy Spirit to illumine your word, to give us understanding. We won't know what we're supposed to know unless you open our minds and open our hearts to receive the truth. So let us behold you in your glory. Let us know you more deeply. And let us follow you in faith and in love and in the hope of the resurrection. Oh Lord, speak to us this morning, we pray. Holy Spirit, open our eyes, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning, beloved, we continue our new series in the Gospel of Mark, but uh, we've called Follow Me. Uh, it's an obvious title to pick for a gospel because so much of what's happening in the gospel is Jesus calling people to do precisely that, to follow him. And it's appropriate, too, because that's what the Christian life is about, is following Jesus. And sometimes we kind of lose our way. We lose our attention. We lose our focus. And we begin to follow other things or to do other things and to have a vague sense of who Jesus is uh, and a vague sense of what it means to follow him. So we're going to spend, uh, Lord willing, the next several weeks working our way through Mark's gospel. We began last week with the first sermon uh, and the first several verses of Mark chapter 1 where Mark tells us in the opening line that this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But as we saw last week, that title, Son of God, is actually in the Old Testament used in several ways. Uh, it's applied to all of Israel as a nation in Exodus chapter 4. The title was sometimes uh, given to kings and applied to kings as they individually represented God uh, in his kingdom, Israel. In Job chapter 1 and chapter 2, the title is used of angels who are coming into the presence of God from time to time. And in the promise made to David, the Davidic covenant, God promised that David would have a son, but that he would adopt David's son, and so become a son of God who would sit on David's throne forever. So when Mark's gospel opens up, it's not entirely clear what he means by the Son of God. What kind of Son of God would Jesus be? Mark, in our text for this morning, verses 9 to 13, actually gives us two quick scenes. We see Jesus at his baptism, and then we see Jesus in the wilderness temptation. And in both of those scenes, the question that sort of hangs over the text is this question, who is Jesus? And what kind of son of God would he be? We'll see God from heaven declare him to be the son of God in his baptism. And in the wilderness temptation, especially in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, it's clear that Satan keeps tempting him and trying him on that very issue. If you are the son of God, if you are the son of God, if you are the son of God, three times he comes at Jesus that way. Satan knew that Jesus was the son of God. And yet he tempts him in that way because what was at stake was what kind of son of God would Jesus be? Would Jesus fail like the many angels who fell with Satan? Would Jesus fail like Israel 
uh, in its many trials and temptations? Would Jesus turn away from God the way some of Israel's kings did? What kind of son of God would Jesus be? As we look at Mark chapter 1, verses 9 to 13, I think we can answer that question with four qualities demonstrated by Jesus. Four qualities demonstrated by Jesus. Number one, he would be a humble son. A humble son. We see that in verse 9. Number two, Jesus would be a pleasing son. A pleasing son. Verses 10 and 11. Number three, he would be a divine son. A divine son, also in verses 10 and 11. And number four, he would be a tempted son. A tempted son, verses 12 and 13. Look with me in Mark chapter 1, verses 9 to 13. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Mark doesn't waste a lot of time telling us Jesus' story. He gets right to the point. In just five verses, he covers the, the Lord's baptism and the Lord's temptation in the wilderness. Matthew does it in 18 verses. Luke does it in about 15 verses. So Mark's style, again, is straight to the point. But in such a condensed style, we can miss the theological importance of what's being said. Events uh, are unfolding that reveal to us who Jesus Christ is. Hanging over Jesus' baptism, hanging over Jesus' wilderness temptation, is this major question, what kind of son of God is Jesus? And the first thing we see is that he is a humble son. I get that from verse 9, two facts there. Fact number one, Jesus was from Nazareth of Galilee. That was his hometown. But Nazareth had a bad reputation in the time of our Lord. You, you may recall from John's Gospel, John chapter 1, when Jesus begins to call people to follow him. You may recall the interaction between Philip and Nathanael. John 1 verse 45. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth. Nathaniel felt about Nazareth the way some people feel about Southeast DC. Nathaniel looked down on Nazareth as an insignificant place and he looked down on the people of Nazareth as insignificant people. He didn't see the potential for anything good coming from that town or neighborhood. But contrast that with Jesus. In humility, the Lord was not afraid to be known as someone from Nazareth. He didn't feel embarrassed to be associated uh, with his community, even though it was a community with a poor reputation. To Jesus, Nazareth was a fact about his life, not a, not a mark against his character. He didn't withdraw in shame. 
Instead, the Lord Jesus identified with the place and identified with the people who were disregarded and rejected by the world. He did that because he was not proud, but humble. The Son of God comes into the world and he identifies with the lowly. But there's a second fact in verse 9 that points to Jesus' humility. Jesus allowed himself to be baptized by John. We saw John's humility back in verse 7. John didn't think himself worthy to even untie the the sandals on Jesus' feet. But if John was humble, Jesus was more so. So even though John announced that he was not worthy to untie Jesus' shoes, notice here, Jesus still submits himself to John's baptism. In doing so, the greatest of all, placed himself under a mere creature. For a moment in baptism, the creator came beneath the creation. That's humility. And these are not the only places where we see Jesus' humility on display, are they? In, In John chapter 13, Jesus washed the feet of his disciples. In that culture, in that day, um, that task of washing someone's feet if they came to your home, well, that was the task, the lowest task given to the lowest slave or household servant. Jesus wipes the towel around his waist, falls to his knees, puts his hands on the grubby feet of his disciples and washes them. And then he teaches them that they should do the same. And in fact, Jesus taught that the greatest in the kingdom of heaven would be servant of all, Matthew 23, 11. But not even foot washing was the most striking demonstration of Jesus' humility. The greatest sign of his humility was the cross. So we read in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 8. Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus... Who, though he, who was, he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see what the text says there? Jesus emptied himself in verse 7. I like the way the King James puts that. He made himself of no reputation. Then he humbled himself even further, not not just in the incarnation, but also in the crucifixion. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross, the most shameful death at the time. Why? It's because he was humble before his father. By contrast now, Israel, as the Son of God, would grow proud and stiff-necked. Kings, as the Son of God, would grow idolatrous and disobedient. But Jesus, the true Son of God, walked in matchless humility all the days of his life. It's interesting. Men and women, when we imagine gods, we tend to imagine the most beautiful, the most potent or powerful, the most captivating figures possible. Men and women tend to imagine that that beauty, that power, that that captivating quality uh, comes from some source inside of that God, comes from some feature about that God. That's how we tend to think of our idols. But Jesus stuns us 
not with striking beauty. Isaiah 53 says that he had no beauty in him that we should desire. Jesus stuns us not initially with dazzling feats of power, though he had all power in his hand. But he stuns us, first of all, with humility, with meekness, with lowliness. The most striking thing about him is this lowliness. You see it in his quiet willingness to be associated with Nazareth, his hometown. You see it in his happy submission to be baptized by John. The Son of God is the most important person in the universe, and yet he is not self-important. He does not need everyone to know how much he knows. He does not need everyone to know how great he is. Jesus is irresistibly and beautifully humble. That's the kind of son of God that Jesus is. Now, this has a real world application for us sinners and sufferers and strugglers. It means Jesus stoops low to be with us and to welcome us. You know, it's pride that says to us that, that we must climb up to be with God. But faith recognizes that Jesus comes down to be with us. He is Emmanuel, God with us. The, the lowly and meek heart is the reason that Jesus is so accessible to us. Matthew chapter 11, Jesus puts it this way in his own words. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Why? For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Sinner, sufferer, struggler, Jesus is humble. That makes him approachable for you and me. He will accept us. In fact, he calls us to come to him. And because, because he is gentle and lowly, we find rest with him. Are you tired? Are you exhausted from trying? Has performance made you heavily burdened? Then follow Jesus, the humble Son of God, with whom you'll find rest. He is a humble Son. Number two, is a pleasing Son. That's what we see in verses 10 and 11, especially verse 11. There the Father says, uh, a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Once again, there are two things to notice that prove that Jesus is a pleasing son. First, the father calls Jesus his beloved son. Beloved comes from the Greek word agape. In the New Testament, beloved is used strictly of God's love for himself or his people and of the Christian's love for each other. So beloved is often associated with a God-like kind of love, a divine love. It's a word that, that communicates tenderness and affection. It's the kind of love that thinks of the loved person as dear. So when God says here that um, you are my beloved son, he is saying that Jesus is the apple of his eye. He's pleasing to the Father. But secondly, the Father plainly says that he is well pleased with Jesus. 
This means the father takes delight in his son. He finds pleasure in Jesus. As Christians, we want to hear God say, well done, our good and faithful servant, at the end of our lives. That well done that we want to hear is a reward for living faithfully to God. But notice now, Jesus receives the well-pleased before he's done anything in public ministry. In other words, the father is pleased with the person of his son, not just his performance. Notice the text says, with you, I am well pleased. The father takes delight in, in Jesus' person. The, the fellowship between father and son is relational, not transactional. Father and son exist in an eternal expression of delight in one another. And here at Jesus' baptism, their divine delight overflows into the world. As the Father announces, this is my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Again, with all the other sons of God, the Father could find displeasure. All the others were insufficient because of sin and corruption. Jesus emerges as a unique Son, as John would say in his Gospel, the only begotten Son. This well-pleased belongs, in some sense, uniquely to Jesus. Not even the angels compare. So think about, for example, the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. For which, to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. You see what the writer of Hebrews is saying there. These angels who in Job chapter 1 and 2 were called the sons of God, they're not the true sons of God. They're not to be compared to how the father delights in his son. For the father delights in his son in such a way as to promise him a kingdom of righteousness and to regard him not as a servant like angels, but to regard him as a ruler, a king, a lord. No one pleases God the Father the way Jesus does. Not even holy angels come close to pleasing God the way the Son of God does. Well, I think there are at least three applications for us as we think about the fact that Jesus as the Son of God is pleasing to the Father. First of all, we sinners, sufferers, and strugglers, we have to recognize that we could never please God this way, could we? Not, not by ourselves. Because we are sinners. We are sufferers. We are strugglers. Our performance is sinful and imperfect. That's what makes the fourth, that's what makes the gospel such wonderful news. See, through faith in Jesus, Jesus pleases the Father for us. I mean, do you ever despair of, of really truly pleasing God? Does, does perfectionism turn in on you and lead you to discouragement? See, this verse is about Jesus, but it is for us. 
Jesus pleases God for you and me in our place as our representative. So we don't have to mourn or despair or let Satan tempt us to, to draw back in discouragement. We look to the Lord, hear, hear the Father's announcement, and know that the Son of God is the pleasing offering that we need. And in Him, through faith in Him, being united to Him, we please God too through Jesus. See, the gospel of Jesus Christ invites us to come please God through faith in the Son. Outside of Jesus, there is no way to please God. But through faith in Jesus, Jesus and everything he has ever done becomes a delightful satisfaction to God our Father. He stands in our place on our behalf. The gospel pleases the Father, because Jesus pleases the Father, and those who are in Jesus likewise please the Father. Believe on Him. Here's the second application. It's an application to parenting. I think verse 11 has implications for us who are parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles and aspiring parents. We parents ought to express our pleasure in the person of our children not just in their performance. See, some parents are only pleased with their children as long as their children make them look good. As long as they perform in some way that the parent sort of receives honor and glory from. But that's not how God the Father relates to God the Son. Not here. The Father verbally expresses pleasure in the Son. We don't customarily think of Jesus needing verbal affirmation. Uh, perhaps he doesn't, but the Father gives it anyway. And that makes the praise all the more lavish and loving, doesn't it? We should parent this way. Let's show our children and our grandchildren, our nieces and nephews, that we delight in their persons, not just their performance. Now, we, we want to equip them and encourage them to do the best they can in life. But we should not, beloved, we should not create a performance-based relationship where children feel they have to earn our love and acceptance. We should not create a performance-based atmosphere. Listen, that makes the idea of grace, gospel grace, seem unreal fictional. We should not leave our children in doubt about our claiming them or being pleased with them, but we should express it with words from, from the highest places. God speaks all the way from heaven. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So, so we should be yelling from the, from the bleachers and the basketball and the football games, that's my son. We should be in the audience, in the auditorium, at the plays and the dance recitals. That's my daughter. We should be pleased enough to say out loud, this one, this one's mine. I'm well pleased with them. When I played high school basketball, the biggest fan in the stadium was my sister, Sissy. That's her nickname. She was loud, petite, but loud. And, and, and no matter what happened, she would begin her, her statement with, that's my brother. 
right? So if I score, that's my brother. If, if I got fouled, that's my brother. Don't be fouling my brother. If, if a foul was called on me, hey, ref, that's my brother. Don't be calling it. He, he was in my brother's way. She'd be so loud and obnoxious. Even my mom would be looking at her like, girl, sit down. <laughs> sit down. But that's how we should be. We should be overflowing in affirmation, claiming our children and expressing pleasure in them if we would parent the way the father relates to the son. Let me give you a third application here. It applies to our PSA teams, particularly the, the family formation PSA team. We, we want to establish homes of pleased acceptance throughout the community. I mean, homes of pleased acceptance, again, it's just another way of describing the goal of the family formation PSA team. What would our community be like if every child in our neighborhood heard their father say, this is my beloved son or daughter in whom I am well pleased? Heard them say it often, heard them say it in different contexts, heard them say it with affection. We don't even have to guess as to what those households would be like. The social science tells us clearly when fathers are present and affirming, little girls are healthy and strong. Little boys are confident and tender. Children grow up to be wonderful people and to do wonderful things. It's amazing how much affirming our children and taking pleasure in them does for them for the remainder of their lives. So we want to stir a movement where parents are encouraged and equipped like the father with the son to affirm their delight in the little persons that God has given us to steward in our children. What kind of son is Jesus? He's a humble son. He's a pleasing son. Number three, he's a divine son. This is what we see again in verses 10 and 11 at Jesus' baptism. Look there again in verse 10. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and a spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. There are people who claim to be Christians who do not believe in the Trinity. Some of them believe that there is one God who existed in different modes at different times. So they might say something like, in the Old Testament, God existed primarily as Father. In the New Testament, especially in the Gospels, God exists or manifested himself uh, as the Son. And in Acts and in the church age, God manifests himself as the Spirit. That's the teaching that's called modalism or Sibelianism. It's named after a man named Sibelius, who was a priest from the 3rd century. Sibelius thought that Jesus was God, he believed in Jesus' deity, but he denied the three persons of the Godhead. It's against the errors of Sibelius that we get the Athanasian Creed, and we get all the creeds that, that affirm the Trinity. Sibelianism or modalism is um, common in a lot of Pentecostalism, but it was rejected as heresy uh, in the early church. And you can see why, looking at Mark chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, at Jesus' baptism. All three persons of the Trinity show up at the same time. They cannot exist as, quote, modes if they all exist simultaneously and they're all worshipped as God. 
So true Christians have always believed that there is one God who exists eternally in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All the historical Christian confessions agree. Our confession, the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, written in 1689, puts it this way. The divine and infinite being consists of three real persons, the Father, the Word or Son, and the Holy Spirit. These three have the same substance, power, and eternity, each having the whole divine essence within this essence being divided, without this essence, excuse me, being divided. The Father is not derived from anyone, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. The Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. All three are infinite and without beginning and are therefore only one God who is not to be divided in nature and being. Yet these three are distinguished by several distinctive characteristics and personal relations. This truth of the Trinity is the foundation of all our fellowship with God and of our comforting dependence on Him. That last line is important. We cannot truly know and truly enjoy a relationship with God unless we believe God to be triune. We cannot truly know and enjoy a relationship with Jesus unless we believe and affirm his, his deity, that he is the divine Son of God, the eternal Son of God, God the Son. The Holy Spirit confirms his deity at his baptism as he descends upon Jesus in the form of a dove. The Father confirms Jesus' Jesus's deity by speaking from heaven to declare, this is my beloved Son. And Jesus himself would affirm his divinity, not just with words, but by actions that only God could perform. So he would do things like forgive sinners, raise the dead, and himself rise from the grave. All things pointing to his divinity. See, in this way, Jesus, as the Son of God, is definitely unique from all the other sons of God in the Bible. All the others are imperfect commercials for him. He alone is the only begotten Son of God, which means he is the only one who proceeds from the Father and shares God's exact nature and being, according to Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. He alone reveals the Father to us according to John 14, 6 and 7. To see Jesus is to see God, John 14, 9. My non-Christian friend, I wonder what you think about Jesus' divinity. Do you believe he is God? Or do you find the Trinity too complex and confusing? Now, to be fair, no one understands it perfectly or completely. I mentioned our statement of faith just a moment ago. There's another line in it that says, His essence cannot be understood by anyone but Him. So even in documents where we confess and summarize the truth we believe about God, we acknowledge that there are things about God's nature that far exceeds our ability to understand. But doesn't that make sense? If we're talking about an infinite God... I mean, my friend, if you could know everything about God and it make perfect sense to you, 
then wouldn't you be God? But you don't even know everything about yourself, do you? Chances are you can't tell us what you had for lunch four Thursdays ago. You can't remember where your paycheck went. Before caller ID, you didn't know who was on the other end of the telephone. So why would someone like you and me ever expect to understand everything about an infinite God? Understand this. God defies human expectation. God surpasses human understanding. We can know him, but only if we accept him as he describes himself. It's like getting in the grocery store and seeing lots of people in the checkout line. There are always lots of people in the checkout line. You've got to wait a long time. And so you're people watching. And so you're looking at people and maybe you're making up in your own mind what those people are like. What kind of lives they live, what kind of jobs they have. You see what's in their basket and you make some inferences about their health and their diet. But all you're really doing is guessing and imagining. You won't really know that person until you speak to one another. Until that person begins to tell you things about themselves. They must reveal themselves to us. Now if that's true of human beings, shouldn't that be true of an infinite God? That we can't know him unless he reveal himself to us? Well, beloved, faith is trusting what God reveals about himself and accepting it as true. In Mark, Mark chapter 1, Jesus is revealed as a divine son of God. Well, you can only know him as the son of God if you accept what he has revealed to us about that. That's who he is. To deny that is by definition not to know him. To accept that is to begin to know an infinite mystery that will stagger us with wonder for all of eternity. Jesus is the kind of son of God who's humble, who's pleasing, and remarkably is divine. He's God. Which brings us to our final thing. He is, number four, a tempted son. A tempted son. We see that in verses 12 and 13 of our text. Notice now, Mark tells us the story of Jesus' wilderness temptation in only two verses. He writes there, The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Satan tempted Jesus three times. We know that from Matthew and Luke's Gospels. Each time, Satan tempted Jesus to, to prove that, that he is the Son of God by doing something sinful. Now, if you understand your Bibles, then you know this feels pretty familiar. It feels pretty similar to something that happens in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. In their wilderness wanderings, they were tempted in various ways. They complained against God. They, they grumbled about hunger. They, they even thought about going back to Egypt where they had been slaves. 
back to the old, familiar way of life. They grew impatient with God and made idols, false gods to worship. Israel utterly failed in the wilderness. But in the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus enters the wilderness without food and without water. He suffers intense temptation from Satan himself. But unlike Israel, Jesus succeeds. Jesus trusts the Father. Jesus obeys God's word. Jesus refuses to worship Satan. And so we hear our Lord in the midst of temptation say things like this. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And with that, Jesus triumphs over temptation. Jesus triumphs over sin. Jesus triumphs over the devil himself. But why is this important? Why must Jesus have been tempted in this way? Well, the answer comes to us in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. There we find these words. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. In that wilderness temptation, Jesus was becoming our great high priest. The Son of God was representing us to God. That's what the high priest did in the Old Testament. He would go into the temple and he would make offerings to God uh, as a representative of the people. Jesus endured our weakness so that he could represent us to God. He endured our weaknesses so that he could sympathize with us. He defeated our temptations so that he could satisfy God on our behalf. He does it all so that we can remain confident in God's gracious rule and receive mercy and help when we need it. What kind of son of God is Jesus? He's the kind that takes up for his people by taking the place of his people. No other son of God in the Bible has ever or could ever do that perfectly, but Jesus did. Now, through Jesus, we Christians have this confidence to go to God. It is a confidence that allows us to be honest about our weaknesses and failings. It's a confidence that allows us to confess not just our sins when we are caught, but to confess our temptations when nobody else knows. It's a confidence that assures us that God understands because God has gone through it. 
to have Jesus as your high priest is to have the stand the Son of God stand in solidarity with you. In Jesus' victory, we find our victory. We continue to be sinners and strugglers and sufferers, but at the same time, we are winners and victors and conquerors through the Lord Jesus Christ. He was showing us that in the wilderness. He was showing us that on the cross. He is showing us that in the resurrection. He is showing us that by his Holy Spirit as he keeps us until the day of glory. Christian, because Jesus is the kind of son who was tempted, go to Jesus with confidence, with all of your temptations and your struggles, with all of your weaknesses and your failings. Go to him expecting his tenderest sympathies and his most powerful help. And my friend, if you're not yet a Christian, I want to encourage you to come to Jesus with confidence too. Come to Jesus with your sin. Come to Jesus with your unrighteousness. Go to him expecting him not to crush you, but to keep his promise to rescue you, to make you new, to give you a new heart and a new life, to give you a new hope and to give you a new home in glory with him. Come to Jesus with confidence that no one who comes to him is ever thrown away or cast out. He will give you the help you need. The help you need will not be better parenting techniques. It will not be a promotion at your job. The help you need will not even be some techniques to be more moral. The help you need is the removal of your sin and the granting of a new and eternal life. The help you need is to have this same Jesus come to you, be with you, and keep you until he brings you safely home to the Father in heaven. He will give you that if you confess that he is the Son of God crucified for you and resurrected, if you confess that he is Lord of your life, and if you put your faith in him and follow him as the unique Son of God. He will be all that you need and you will be never regretting. Given what kind of son of God Jesus is, there's not a person who hears my voice who should not come to him confidently now and always. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your son. And Lord Jesus, we thank you for who you are. Humble, pleasing, divine, tempted. And we thank you that you are all those things for us to make room for sinners to come back to God. We praise you for your sacrifice on the cross and we praise you for your glorious resurrection. We praise you for the promise of eternal life. And we pray, O oh Lord, that you would even now give someone that eternal hope. And we pray that even now you would keep someone who is struggling with doubt in the faith. And even now, you would assure those who continue to press toward the new Jerusalem. Do this, O Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.